Before we begin today, you are about to listen to episode 100 of the Gradient Podcast. This seems like a good time to reintroduce what we're doing here for those of you who might have joined us more recently. As I mentioned pretty much every episode, the Gradient is a volunteer-run project by a few engineers and grad students. This show is a one-person effort where I hope to bring you some of the most interesting voices thinking about AI right now. That includes people from both inside and outside the field. And in that vein, if you've listened to the show for a while, then I'll hope you've picked up that it's not a show entirely about trends, but one more about stories and people and ideas. It's about the different ways we can think on a capacious field full of difficult-to-define concepts and hard problems of many different types. If you like what I'm doing here, and I do hope to continue doing this, your support does mean a lot. I appreciate reviews, and it's great to hear from you if you have feedback, guest suggestions, comments, or anything else to send my way. You can reach me via editor at thegradient.pub, and you can always leave us comments on Substack. I do read all of your comments and find them very helpful as I continue working on improving the show. Your reviews as well help people find us, they help me figure out what you like about the show as I keep doing it, and it makes a kid in his mid-twenties very happy indeed. And finally, as I mentioned, this is a volunteer project. Our funds currently go towards site upkeep and ad hoc expenses, but if you do want to help create a world, in which we might have enough funds to compensate our editorial staff, then you can support us with a paid subscription through Substack or through Patreon. Once again, thank you so much for listening and for your support, and I hope you enjoy the episode. There are far too many challenges in machine learning to describe in any reasonable amount of time, from fundamental questions about how we think about knowledge and understanding and computational systems, to difficulties in applying ML techniques to areas like ecosystem informatics. Professor Thomas Dieterich is a brilliant and prolific researcher whose work has tackled many different types of questions AI researchers find themselves trying to answer. And he has thought incredibly deeply about the even more basic problems facing the field. From his early work describing knowledge-level learning to his more recent ideas for developing high-reliability AI and for developing modular intelligent systems that can do things language models can't, Professor Dieterich has carefully considered what the important problems and goals for AI research are. This was an expansive conversation covering a great deal of Professor Dieterich's career. I hope you'll gain some perspective on not only how ML has changed over time, but also how Professor Dieterich thinks about scientific paradigms and what the field ought to be thinking about next. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, 
If you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Thomas Dieterich. Professor Dieterich, you're often called a a founder of the field of machine learning, which I don't know how you feel about the label, but it's hard to dispute that you've made a number of very important contributions to both basic research in the field and applications. And so my first question, as usual, is how did you get into AI in the first place? So I did my undergraduate degree in computer science, uh, uh, well, not in computer science, in, ma- in mathematics uh, at Oberlin College, because there was no, uh, computer science really wasn't available at the undergraduate level uh, back in the mid-70s when I was in uh, an undergraduate. Um, <clears throat> but I um, had, had always been engaged with computers uh, for a long time. My uncle was an early programmer on the GE timesharing system at Dartmouth uh, as an employee of General Electric. And so uh, in my early teens, I had a chance to program in basic uh, on that timesharing system. So I'm so I mostly managed to skip the punch card uh, generation and go straight to paper tape. But uh, so so I decided to apply to graduate school, not really knowing what graduate school was or what computer science was. But as an undergraduate, I had uh, gotten interested in the philosophy of science a bit through a course on philosophy of political science, which is a back, back-end route. But, uh, but I'd read uh, Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and I was really intrigued by these questions of how is it that uh, you know, humankind has, has uh, been able to learn over time uh, presumably more and more accurate understand models and theories of, of the physical world, the biological world, and so on. How does that process of conceptual change and, uh, and knowledge uh, growth happen? Um, and uh, as uh, one of the philosophers of science that I was reading at the time said, and how does it happen in, as a series of rational steps? <laughs> or is it uh, a more random? So when I applied to graduate school, uh, I was admitted to the University of Illinois, um, and contacted by a faculty member there, Richard Mikalski, who was working in uh, what, w- what came to be called machine learning. So um, Arthur Samuel, of course, in the late 1950s, had uh, uh, coined the term machine learning. I think that's the earliest uh, mention we know of it. But it wasn't really used much in the 60s, uh, and it was really in the late 70s. So I was applying to graduate school in 1977, or started in fall of 77. Um, but, uh, but, but Michalski was interested in trying to learn logical expressions that describe situations uh, from data. Um, and in those days, we were very much under the influence of uh, uh, expert systems technology and hand-authored rules. And so there was a, the, the goal was really to learn correct rules from data. Um, and uh, uh, so... Uh, I, I, a little side di- diversion there is we often were not learning the correct rules, at least not the rule that we intended to learn in our, these were mostly on toy problems. But what was interesting was the rules were almost always very accurate, even though they weren't 100% correct. Um, and that later 
um, uh, following up on that idea is really uh, uh, what Leslie Valiant did in introducing the probably approximately correct framework for machine learning, which really said it's a statistical undertaking, not a, I guess, not a sort of uh, program synthesis. I think we were thinking about much more in the way of synthesizing code or synthesizing uh, knowledge representations, logical expressions. There was a notion of correctness, and he was saying, well, the notion of correctness needs to be relaxed in two ways. It needs to be allowed to be only approximately correct, and you also need to be, uh, be permitted to fail completely with some probability. <laughs> um, and, and if you could take those two relaxations, then you could uh, prove theorems about uh, things that could be learned in, in polynomial time and space. But coming back to the story, so I was offered a research assistantship with, with Richard, and I took him up on it. And, uh, and then I worked um, on uh, problems. He was looking at uh, uh, his application work was uh, diseases in soybean plants. Uh, after all, we're at an ag school at the University of Illinois. And so uh, uh, that, was, that was interesting work, trying to figure out how to do that. My, uh, my master's thesis was actually about um, a game that had been published in Martin Gardner's mathematical uh, uh, column in Scientific American called Eleusis, um, in which uh, it's a two-player game. One player is the dealer, and the dealer uh, invents a rule that will describe a sequence of cards that are legal to play. And, uh, and then uh, the goal of the players is to try to, uh, to not exactly to infer the rule, but to play according to the rule successfully. So, um, uh, so you could play a card and the, de and the dealer would uh, tell you, yes, that's correct. That's a legal extension of this sequence or no, that's incorrect. And so you get a negative training example. And so I coded up a, uh, a very ad hoc program that well we played we had we played a bunch of these games among the graduate students and then based on that sort of data set I engineered a program that could play the game fairly well for I mean the the trouble is there's sort of an infinite space of possibilities and so uh, there are many things that I couldn't handle but um, and so uh, yeah, I and I had a little correspondence with Martin Gardner after that which was fun. Um, so in 1980, uh, I had moved to Stanford University um, for the PhD, and uh, but but in uh, but but Richard Michalski, in collaboration with Tom Mitchell and Jaime Carbonell, who were, uh, uh, I mean, I think they were both at CMU, or Tom may still have been at Rutgers, but uh, the three of them organized the first workshop on machine learning, um, and 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 Richard introduced that name, said let's call it machine learning. I think that was a somewhat controversial um, because that, I, it, it was um, uh, there. There's always been a tension about is machine learning part of artificial intelligence or is it something else? And I think this is more of a branding exercise. But in any case, um, uh, we had that first workshop and there were about 30 people there. Herbert Simon gave the sort of keynote uh, speech to, to these 30 assembled people in a classroom at Carnegie Mellon. Um, and uh, but the problem about you know why should machines learn and uh, and and uh, a, a young guy named Ross Quinlan um, uh, gave a talk on on uh, uh, using decision tree algorithms. He invent he proposed a new decision tree algorithm called ID three, and he was using it to take uh, enumer reverse enumerations of chess endgames and turn them into uh, decision trees or rules that a person could use to play perfect chess in certain endgames. 
like King and Rook, King and Rook versus King and Knight. Uh, uh, kind of these. So once you got yourself into an endgame, um, you know, uh, um, Ken Thompson, who right was one of the co-inventors of Unix um, at Bell Labs. Uh, was also interested in chess and had been doing reverse enumerations from all winning positions in chess backwards uh, and building these huge tables with the idea that they could be somehow, um, you know, put into a chess playing program to play perfect chess. And But Ross was interested in, could we boil it down to a set of rules that a human could memorize to play perfect chess? Um, and uh, so there, that, still, that still shows that uh, machine learning in that very first workshop was not statistical. It was it was supposed to be lossless uh, boiling down of data into rules, um, sort of lossless compression in a human understandable way. Um, and so uh, I would say even toward the end of my dissertation work, uh, that was still kind of the mindset of the community. And we had and there were people involved in um, in that community that were coming from you know psychological models, John Anderson's. Um, Act, uh, act our uh, cognitive uh, architectures, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and so I'm trying to think. I mean, Doug Lennett was involved, and and uh, um, uh, so so lots of different, uh, very very diverse uh, philosophers, um, psychologists, computer scientists, uh, things. So so after that first workshop, then I think we had a second one in 1982 that was at Illinois. And there we must have had probably more like 80 participants. And a third one in 1983, maybe, that Tom Mitchell hosted in Pennsylvania. Um, and at that workshop, he invited uh, Leslie uh, 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 to, to give his um, uh, PAC learning talk as one of the invited talks. And so I think that's kind of the time at which we started to make the shift to thinking about it, things statistically. Um, so I don't know. I don't count myself as a founder. Maybe one of the early uh, participants, but the the founders really would be, uh, you know, uh, Mitchell, Michalski, and 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 Carbonell. One thing that really stuck out to me in your story was the encounter with Thomas Kuhn you mentioned, and I wanted to pull that out for a second, just because I think that right now there are a lot of interesting takes going around or ideas questioning, well, just what kind of discipline is artificial intelligence, is machine learning? There is a lot of banding around the idea that it's, at least at the moment, primarily an engineering discipline. And I think that a number of people I've spoken to, though, still really look at it with more scientific rigor. And, and I suppose this can, of course, depend on precisely the types of questions or precisely the end goals you have in mind. But Kun kind of interested me, and the thing you said about him was very similar to, I think, something that Karl Popper says in his Conjectures and Refutations about just the growth of scientific knowledge being this procession of theories that cannot ever be proven true. You can gather more evidence for them, and then you can conclusively prove them false. And we sort of iterate on that process to get better and better and better theories. And that's sort of how you have all these encounters with epistemological questions, the Kantian you know, critique of pure reason kind of being in that critical context of, well, we have the Newtonian theory now, and it seems to be just true. So how can we actually know something like this? I'm curious if that encounter with Kuhn with some of these questions 
maybe continues to influence how you think about what you are doing as a discipline and maybe the way you approach questions? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so my PhD advisor was Bruce Buchanan at, at uh, Stanford, who was part of Ed Feigenbaum's uh, very large lab, the Knowledge Systems Lab. Um, Bruce was trained as a philosopher of science, and he was an instrumentalist. So, uh, so we were never allowed to use words like real, true, genuine uh, in anything. And, uh, and he really sensitized me to, uh, to, to, this, to this point that, that, that we, we can't know that our theories are correct, um, and, uh, but we can evaluate them from, from evidence and, from, uh, you know, and perhaps also from their usefulness uh, as engineers. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think uh, just as an example, I, you, you know, I've been an advocate of, uh, I, I would say of, of the, uh, you know, Daniel Dennett takes that, that kind of uh, perspective with respect to uh, notions of knowledge, intelligence, agency, action, goal, the idea is that we, we attribute these to a system uh, because they give us predictive power or explanatory power for, for understanding how the system will behave. But they are not real in any sense, uh, in the sense that you could open up the brain of someone and find this single neuron that, that encodes their goals or something like this. And, uh, and, and, and I take that perspective with respect to things like understanding. So uh, I, I wrote this piece uh, that, that was sort of an editorial, I guess, um, or a blog post on what does it mean for, a, for, a, for a machine to understand. And I'm really advocating that kind of an instrumental view that if, if the system responds appropriately, uh, I mean, my example is if I tell Siri to call my wife and it, it dials the right phone number, it's hard to convince me that it didn't understand. I think it understood my request. But uh, but but people say, yeah, but did it really understand? Was it genuine understanding? Um, and I think that that's the wrong question. I think understanding it, uh, can vary on a lot of different dimensions. It's going to be uh, it might be very shallow understanding. So I'm pretty sure Siri doesn't know understand what it really means to be someone's wife or husband, right? Uh, all the consequences of that, um, or. Uh, uh, or really uh, understand what happens after it um, invokes the dial this number API. You know, does it have any understanding that there's then a conversation and that, uh, you know, information might be exchanged, promises might be made, you know, uh, that there, there will be outcomes of that call that, that, that might influence future action and so on. I don't think there's any, it has no understanding of that. So um, understanding can also be, I would say, point-wise versus systematic. So uh, Siri may know uh, who my wife is and not be able to call anybody else in my dress book, right? <laughs> so this becomes an extremely narrow uh, 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 capability, a very narrow understanding. But maybe it systematically understands how to call anyone whose number is in my address book. That would be better. Um, uh, and of course, it'd be even better if it had the capability to say, well, I don't know that number, but I can go try to look it up online or or look through your emails at signatures or something to try to track it down. So, so that definitely reflects this, this idea that, um, that, that, that the, the search for genuine understanding uh, or, or reality is, is really, is, I almost use the word really, is, <laughs> is a, uh, it, it is 
a doomed undertaking that what what we can do though is hope to try to build systems that are you know uh, have deeper more systematic more reliable understanding of our intentions and our goals and what they should be doing to help us in what you said about levels of understanding and the fact that they exist along a continuum it's kind of interesting just to be careful about demarcating when we're describing properties of a system, those which will scale in ways that these do along a continuum and which might be binary properties. There was this big set of Twitter discourse that went on after Ilya Sitzkever's tweet about today's neural networks may be slightly conscious. And I recall somewhere around that time, you had a Twitter thread where you made a very similar point about levels of sentience being on a continuum, which I thought was a really useful way of thinking about that particular debate as well. And just kind of looking at some of these things though, that we want to ascribe, whether it's talking about understanding or, or sentience or even grounding, for instance, I think people have brought the idea of a continuum existing in that domain. Although I, I think Harnad might maybe slightly disagree with that being a good characterization of what goes on with grounding. It seems like there's just still not enough nuance. It's either this is sentient, this is not sentient. And so it seems like though empirically there are kind of only a few things we can characterize, right? It's what you said about there being measurable kind of concrete capabilities we can look at. With deep learning, you sort of pointed out in this essay we're talking about that the connectionist methods we use now have very difficult to interpret internal structures. And of course, there is still work going on trying to interpret those. We have mechanistic interpretability, for instance, but you suggest that we should focus on desired behavioral capabilities and then ask how internal mechanisms achieve those capabilities. Yeah, I guess, right, where I, I, I think I link up with Harnad in the sense that if you, I mean, he wants to say that uh, a symbol or a behavior is grounded if it can be causally connected to, say, the object in the world. Or uh, and uh, uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I I I would say that on a spectrum of of depth of understanding, uh, causal connection is su- superb and very very strong. And you would be very confident that the system is uh, has a systematic and deep understanding if it can achieve that. But I don't think that's essential. So that's um, so so I yeah so. Uh, and I and I think when he gets into this discussion of kind of indirect grounding, that uh, the you know the the connection becomes more tenuous uh, because it's not necessarily uh, fully causal. Um, and we see, I, I you know I, I I'm more and more aware of the shortcomings of statistical learning when we enter this space because uh, you know Udaya Pearl has shown very convincingly that you cannot. Uh, draw causal conclusions without making causal assumptions. And statistical learning has uh, not been willing to make causal assumptions and, until, the, I mean, there's a small subcommunity working on causal modeling and causal learning. But uh, the, I, I think that, 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 that Pearl's work establishes sharp limits on what we can achieve using only statistical learning without introducing uh, a broader framework of, of causal reasoning. And uh, I think that that's uh, sobering. We, we, we're seeing that 
we can get uh, statistical learning to do beautiful things in language understanding, speech recognition, translation, uh, 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 you know, computer vision, segmentation, all of these things uh, with very high performance. And yet we also see lots of failure modes of these systems. And some of them are, I think, due to not really establishing the uh, underlying causal understanding of the, of the world. And I think um, this has engineering implications, obviously, as well. The, um, when, when I've been lately trying to think about how could we get any kind of uh, confidence that a system had correctly achieved a systematic understanding of something. Um, when we look at traditional software, we can compare how we design and test that software the, the design and coding is done by a human who's generally thinking very causally and systematically about the domain, right? Each basic block in, in a piece of code is, is supposed to is, is systematically uh, handle some region of the problem space, the input space or whatever, um, until you reach some conditional and then it has to branch and so on. And then we test that code by testing its behavior on individual test inputs. And uh, if we can ensure that we've covered every basic block of the software with a test, we're confident that because the inside the block, they're systematic, that that gives us some confidence the whole, the whole code is systematic and, and, and it's covering everything. But with machine learning uh, or statistical learning, we, uh, we train only on data points. And, and so we get, and we all, then we turn around and test again, only on data points. So we are only testing the point-wise understanding of the system and not its systematic understanding. Uh, and so I, I think this is a, a interesting challenge for the machine learning community. Can we find ways of testing for systematicity in the system behavior? Um, and, and we can see that uh, the, this attempt to, to turn around and use LLMs to generate software, which we can then test and check in more traditional ways, uh, is is uh, is an interesting response and, and a very promising direction. I want to quickly rest a second on the idea of robustness or depth of or systematicity of understanding being backed by this causal understanding of the world. There's, of course, and, and you'll be very well aware of the well-known problem of induction, and someone might take that to be skeptical of even your and my ability to form causal understandings of the world. And of course, I think Karl Popper, who we referenced earlier, has his own sort of solution to this. But I'm curious about how you think about the idea of our ability to form causal understandings of the world and then what that says about the possibility of research programs to get, you know, AI systems, computer programs to also develop that. Well, I think... Uh... We can easily imagine having causal a space of causal hypotheses that we're considering, and we can then collect data, do experiments, or or take observations that can help us reason about those. We can be can be Bayesian about those different hypotheses and which ones are better supported by the evidence. You know what Pearl's theory tells us how to do is exactly that: to say, well, how do I remove confounding so that I can actually estimate the causal effects? Uh, under various conditions and so on. Um, and uh, how do I have to, how can I convert the causal inference problem into a statistical inference problem? But, but you have to start with a set of causal hypotheses. So there's no fundamental barrier to, do, to doing this 
from a machine learning or epistemological standpoint. It's just that it requires a different uh, set of machine learning algorithms than the ones that, that, that have basically been based on fitting, uh, you know, uh, flexible uh, data sponges or functions, which is what we have with, with deep learning or decision trees or, you know, generalized additive models or whatever your favorite family is. Before we move on from this section, you have this other paper called Learning at the Knowledge Level. And what I was hoping we could kind of get out of this paper is maybe to build up the tools to make sense of, of this statement. You wrote that the approach in the AI community is seizing the search for a general theory of non-deductive knowledge level learning, and instead to focus on the development of induction methods that appear to give good results in practice. And I think parts of that sentence are going to ring familiar and, and make sense to people who are listening right now. But I think that there are terms here like non-deductive knowledge level learning that might be interesting to introduce. And so you introduce in this paper sort of ways to describe systems, uh, what you call the knowledge level, and you introduce knowledge and symbol level learning. I'm wondering if we could maybe rehearse a couple of these definitions just as a framework for how you were thinking about systems at the time. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so, so uh, you know, my paper was a was building on top of Alan Newell's uh, AAAI presidential address uh, from, I think, 1982, where he talked about introduced this notion of the knowledge level. Um, and that in turn was building on Daniel Dennett's notion of the intentional stance. So, so Newell was really asking, uh, can we take Dennett and actually somehow make it real? So I think Newell was, uh, uh, argues that there are multiple levels of descriptions of systems and that they can be viewed as behavioral laws for those systems. So He's very much, uh, and I think many of us as engineers are very attracted to the idea that we can start with circuits and then build uh, uh, logic, logic and adders and multipliers and, and CPUs, and then we can build operating systems, and then we can build compilers, and then we can build software, and then we can build distributed systems and networks, and, and the whole thing is reducible, right? So it's a, it's a reductionist dream that you can take a phenomenon at a very high level of behavior, even something like, uh, you know, chat GPT and go all the way down to, you know, what gates and what, what, you know, uh, uh, depletion regions and semiconductors led to that uh, output. Um, and so, and Newell wrote books on computer organization, among other things in his amazing career. Um, and so he was trying to argue that there is a um, kind of a, a level at the knowledge level that, that, that is um, similar to these other levels of description. He admits that it's not quite perfect. And, and I would say that it's still a fully a, a level at which we uh, ascribe behavior. We, we, we talk approximately about the idea that um, a system, if, uh, uh, that if we're trying to predict the behavior of a system, uh, and we can, attribute the, we can attribute goals to the system. So we can say the system has this goal, and, uh, and then we can say, well, um, if the system also has uh, some knowledge, uh, then it will act, use that knowledge to achieve its goals. So, uh, you know, if the system has, I don't know, the goal of, uh, of, of purchasing a car, well, maybe that's too big, maybe making an online purchase. Um, so maybe it wants to purchase a mouse or something. Um, uh, and it has knowledge about a credit card. 
then it could use that knowledge to, we would predict that it would, it would use that credit card to charge the, the, uh, the transaction and do the transaction. Um, and if it fail, if it can't figure out how to, to um, uh, make the purchase, we might say, well, the problem is it doesn't know the credit card number or it doesn't know how to use a credit card. And so Newell was pointing out, and I think also Dennett, that we use these words like no and goal in our, in our, when, as engineers, when we're describing systems, we say, oh, I see at this point in the program, it doesn't know the IP address. And so, so, we, so it seems that it's very useful to describe what a system knows uh, at, at end and to then uh, you know, say, well, uh, a failure of behavior is a failure to have the right knowledge or a failure to, to, to apply the right knowledge. I mean, we're seeing this right now with LLMs. I think a lot of prompting is about we, we, we know that the LLM knows some fact, but how do we prompt it so that it will use that fact to answer the question? And, uh, and I think a lot of this chain of thought stuff is all about trying to elicit the right knowledge uh, out, of, out of this giant sort of you know, latent knowledge base that's somehow inside these systems uh, so that it can use it to do things. But um, okay, so that was the picture was Newell was trying to describe systems. And it occurred to me well, you know, we've been trying to define what does it mean to learn, right? This is, again, pre-statistical learning. So what it means to learn is that a system goes from having some amount of knowledge, K1, at time one, to some larger amount of knowledge, K2, at time two. And so if we could some quantify that knowledge and describe that, that change in knowledge, that would be learning. And so that was my attempt. And um, uh, one... One issue that always comes up when you're just saying, well, does a system know something? What if a system knows, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, well, just the classic case would be something like, you know, it knows all men are mortal and it knows Socrates is a man. So uh, does it also know that Socrates is mortal? Does it know the logical consequences of its existing knowledge? Uh, which we might call the deductive closure of everything it knows. And um, there was, uh, and, and, you know, at one level, you might say, yes, the system, uh, uh, at least uh, if we give it an infinite amount of computational capabilities, then a system could compute all of the, the consequences of its knowledge. Um, but in practice, of course, the system can't afford to do that. We live in a finite universe. And, and, um, uh, and so, it might implicitly know something, but not actually be able to compute it in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, and of course, this leads us into the whole field of computational complexity and all these kinds of things. So, um, so there was a, a so so I wanted to draw draw a distinction between symbol level learning, which was which was appealing to another Newell and Simon notion that there's a level of description of the system called the symbol level, which is just below the knowledge level, um, and uh, in which you might be doing things like calc- computing the logical consequences of your or, of your uh, of your existing knowledge, and then caching them away so that they're immediately accessible if you need them later. Um, and uh, you know, Newell had been working uh, with Paul Rosenblum, his PhD student at the time, on a theory of skill acquisition, which was which which modeled the acquisition of human skill through practice as exactly this kind of phenomenon. You you're told, say, the rules of chess. And so in some sense, if you know the rules of chess, you know how to play 
uh, all possible chess games, you know, who wins, you know, you, you know whether white can win or whether the value of the game is it's really a draw. No human knows this, no machine knows this, but this is, of course, the it's a logical consequence of the rules of the game. Well, but you don't know how to play the game very well. And so as you practice, as you play many games, their theory was you are basically learning patterns that are the logical consequences of what you already knew, but you're then storing them uh, so that you can recognize them and use them quickly in the future. And they show that this explains the power law of practice, which was uh, something that's a pretty robust finding in, in psychology um, and, and several other things. Anyway, so we, I was calling that symbol level learning because in some sense, the, the deductive closure of your knowledge has not changed, but the computationally accessible uh, amount of knowledge that it has changed, it has increased as you, as you do this. And there was a, a sub-area of machine learning that had been born around this time called explanation-based learning. And it was precisely this kind of process. Um, you would uh, learn uh, how to uh, say, the first example was a system that learned to, to uh, solve problems in integral calculus. And what it would do is it would, it would uh, start out with just the basic rules that you find in, you know, in the CRC uh, integrals table or whatever. And, um, and given a problem, it would engage in a, in a search process uh, similar to a star search to try to find a sequence of integration operations that would solve the problem. And then it would analyze that sequence and say, what other problems would this same sequence of operators apply to? And it would try to find the so-called weakest preconditions of that sequence, which would be, and then it would store a new pattern, a new integration rule, and it would say, for anything of this form, you can apply this as a macro operator and get the answer immediately. And so it could learn these over time, but it was really just working out the logical consequences of what it had already been told. And, and this was uh, it, uh, somehow very different from what was happening in inductive learning or statistical learning, where we start with, we're only told a finite set of data points and we're, and we're trying to leap to a general rule. And that goes beyond the evidence, right? To some uh, higher level. Now, uh, the standard Bayesian uh, uh, view of this is that it's not actually an inductive leap. You have a prior and you're just updating that prior with this evidence and now you have a posterior and the posterior is a deductive consequence of the prior and the evidence. Um, so, so the Bayesians kind of avoid this problem of induction by, by, uh, by turning it into a statistical inference. Um, but in my paper, I was looking at uh, things like these decision tree algorithms and so on, which are really using some form of Occam's razor. And so they've adopted some space of hypotheses, which might be uh, logical rules with at most five conditions. And then they try to find the simplest logical rule that is consistent with the data and then output that as their uh, uh, new belief and, and try to act on it. And so they are making some sort of an, a, a non-deductive uh, you know, substantive inference uh, from that. And so that, and, and that's a, I was calling that out as a different kind of knowledge level learning because it's, uh, it's, it, it, it seems to be involving this um, leap of inductive leap. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so that was really, I was trying to really say those guys that are doing this explanation based learning, they're not solving the problem of induction. Uh, this is all a side show and we should be focusing on the real problem, which is statistical learning. Uh, yeah, the the problem or or the example of this 
symbolic integration solver that you had was pretty interesting there. And I suppose for somebody listening to this, trying to make sense of it a little bit more, it's not too different from experiences we might have in, say, doing mathematics. I had two friends who took analysis classes in college with pretty different professors. And one of those professors was running their analysis class in such a way that they were really rigorous about every proof and kind of trying to solve everything from, you know, the most basic principles and the ground up. And that class went really slowly, but then, you know, the student got really good at proofs and then the other took one with a different professor. And so they both took analysis two together. And one of those friends who took the class with maybe fewer big hammers and theorems and tools was like, I can do all the proofs, but I'm so slow at them compared to the other students because they have all of these theorems that, I mean, I can in principle prove from what I know, but they can just kind of like whack at things and and get to the solution faster. And he felt like he was suffering a little bit there. And so it's like, yes, in a sense, like there is that same deductive closure aspect that you're talking about. But in one case, you do have something that is a, a serious difference. You can get to the thing you want to do a little bit faster. Right. And I think when we now look at uh, what's happening in large language models, uh, there's a sense that they seem to be uh, learning the what would be kind of the results of inference without having to without having learned the the first principles, right? So they don't have a causal theory of why uh, certain things are are the are the right answers to questions, but but they they've they've kind of memorized the these uh, patterns without without the, the ability to derive them, and uh, um, and and uh, so this also relates to the system one system two notion, right? That that, uh, that system two is more this. Let's prove things from from uh, uh, deeper. Not we we somehow our first no, taught the rules of chess, and then uh, we and and when we first play chess, we're playing with system two, and it's very slow and interpretive. But over time, we turn that into a practiced skill and becomes kind of mental muscle memory, and it's now system one type knowledge. And uh, you know, Rao Kampampati at Arizona State, and and I have both been. Uh, and I, several other people have been pointing out that it sure feels like LLMs are just learning straight at system one without ever learning the system two um, uh, knowledge in, in, in a way that they could do the skill acquisition. Uh, and as a result, they don't get faster over time because they, they don't have a skill acquisition component. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I think that's uh, maybe also relevant to this question of, um, uh, the role of metacognition, right? Uh, there's this paper by Mahawald et al. Uh, that came out, I guess, in 2022 uh, about uh, analyzing LLMs from the point of view of neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience. And um, they point out that one of the roles of the prefrontal cortex is to uh, know when you're in a novel situation where you can't rely on your system one knowledge and you have to go back to working with the, with your rule-based knowledge. And, uh, and I think that's something that's missing from large language models uh, and, and sort of all falls into this story about um, right, skill acquisition, deductive knowledge level versus inductive knowledge level learning. Right. And again, I guess, as you kind of mentioned earlier, it's not that they're just totally incapable of doing something that at least looks like step-by-step -step reasoning. And, you know, you might have intuitions about what's actually going on when it appears that they do that. But we do have to 
take pains to elicit that out of them via things like chain of thought prompting, like in the case of, of doing arithmetic, um, Hadi Joe, for instance, had that paper on algorithmic prompting to get them just to do, well, addition, multiplication, that sort of thing correctly as well. Right. Uh, they certainly are not learning how to add and multiply the way human students do. Um, yeah, One of the people on my PhD committee was Kurt Van Lane, who was developing a uh, sort of inductive theory of how children learn to do multi-column arithmetic. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it would be uh, wise for people to go back and look at that because his premise was that uh, that you that yeah, he, the the title was something like one disjunct per lesson. Uh, the idea that the the student is expecting that each has a sort of prior bias that each lesson is going to teach a new branch in the program that we need to learn, um, and uh, and so that that and that allows them to very rapidly learn learn the program, but. But yeah, I mean, there's presumably a vast amount of stuff that we learn as humans for which we do not have the system to rule basis for it. We just learn this works, right? And uh, and this also leads to to superstitions. Uh, my wife was it was a lab scientist, and uh, back in the days when everybody was running uh, gel electrophoresis and and other things, there were all kinds of sort of magic steps in the pro in the lab protocols. No one knew why they were there, but no one dared remove them either uh, because it works, right? Uh, and so, why do you why do you uh, soak this this um, um, uh, filter paper in milk before running the experiment? No one knew, but uh, you know, experiments are painful, so you just do it. <laughs> and, uh, so we get that kind of hitchhiking uh, of uh, irrelevant um, uh, beliefs uh, along with because because we don't have the ability. To, to appeal back to the fundamental causal story. Right. There's also ways, I guess, that kind of doing the reverse can lead us astray. Not to say that we live in a world where there aren't reasons for everything or, or anything, but you think about the ways in which we develop conspiracy theories and almost that being an over-application of system two type thinking, or at the very least, you do that in such a way that it leads you kind of down a wrong path. And there was a really interesting paper on one way you might suggest or think about this happening that I read recently, my one of my professors in college was very interested in the principle of sufficient reason in metaphysics, just that for everything that exists or obtains, there is a reason. And this paper was sort of looking at how that maps onto human cognitive systems. Of course, Kant, for his part, was also very much like, you know, human cognition is going to look for basic grounds for, for all sorts of knowledge. And I think that this paper was looking at, well, in our sort of daily acts of thinking about the world and reasoning about things, does something like a principle of sufficient reason apply? And in the experiments they did on human subjects, it did seem like something of that sort was going on, where people would seek reasons for things. But I think that to, to what you said, I guess, in the reverse of the system one, system two thing, maybe it's not entirely a reverse, but you know, we look for reasons where maybe it's just very, very difficult to find them or something of that sort, and then kind of end up in these jet fuel can't melt steel beams kind of ideas that, that lead us astray in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to move on to a couple of your papers on, I guess, what you call sort of routine science. And the first section of them is a lot of earlier work on ensemble methods and machine learning. And one of the first ones here was on solving multi-class learning problems via error-correcting output codes. 
there are really, I think, kind of two key aspects of this approach. But I think the maybe most interesting idea here is just the maybe framework we kind of have for thinking about these problems in this paper. So I'm wondering if you could maybe introduce some of the ideas here. Well, so so that that paper uh, uh, partly had its origins in the fact that the that my I had a colleague in the office next to me who was, works on error correct encoding, and so we would chat. Um, but but let's say you have a uh, and as a, a classification problem. Uh, I was very much inspired by the early work that Terry Sanofsky published on the NetTalk system. So one of the early demonstrations of backpropagation and uh, and sigmoid neural networks. Right, was a system that could learn to uh, convert from uh, spelled English words into their phonetic transcription. And then you could push those through a device called the DeckTalk, which, which used a phonetic input and would produce speech, synthetic speech in, in various voices. Um, and, uh, and it was a fun demonstration of, uh, of learning because it basically studied a phonetic dictionary uh, you know, of, of uh, I want to say 20,000 words of English and their phonetic transcriptions, and and then it could it could pronounce words that it had not seen in the dictionary. We hold, held out a test set of, of things, and one of the things that was interesting there was that they represented the output phonemes not as I think there were fifty five classes of phonemes, but they represented them using a distributed representation in terms of properties of the phonemes. You know, were they were they ones where that were like uh, sibilates or plosives? You know the 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 uh, the kinds of attributes that that uh, phonologists and, and linguists talk about, um, and so that meant that instead of having if we have uh, fifty four phonemes having a neural network with fifty four outputs, the network had many fewer outputs and was encoding these. And I thought that's interesting, uh, and I and saw saw this analogy to error correction codes where. Um, if we have a, a discrete vocabulary of, say, you know, 128 things we want to encode, we could encode it in seven bits, but, uh, uh, and, and, but then, um, you know, if we're sending those seven bits over a noisy channel, uh, every code word, uh, if it's mutated by flipping a bit, will turn into another valid code word, and you can't correct it. But if we add some check bits or parity bits, then we can ensure that around every code word, there's like a ball of Hamming distance three, say, and that means we can we can actually recover from any single bit error. Um, and so that was the idea was that since learning algorithms are imperfect and uh, we could maybe think of the learning algorithm as being like a noisy channel so that we're going to formulate a whole set of binary problems that correspond to the individual bits of a code of an encoding an error correcting encoding of the original K class problem. So if we had 128 classes, we could have seven bits that were the original seven bits that are encoding in binary the, the problem. And then we could add another, well, with, with uh, neural networks, we could put 30 or 40 extra bits of, of uh, and, and so we could use error, uh, error correcting codes that have huge correction ca uh, capabilities. Um, and so now we're training a bunch of, Two class classifiers, and hoping that they make independent mistakes. If their mistakes are made independently, then uh, basically, you know, the the binomial theorem applies, and and we we can uh, uh, guarantee that that we can uh, correct the vast majority of the er of the errors. And so it turned out that it worked. Um, now, soon after that, right, uh, 
other people developed other ensemble techniques, in particular, random forests were, uh, you know, Leo Bryman's great contribution, also boosting techniques, bagging. And these could all be hybridized. So uh, it turns out that that you could combine boosting with error correction codes or 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 bagging or random forests. Um, uh, an interesting question uh, that we might want to think about is: uh, is the is is our our deep learned representations uh, that the, these embeddings are maybe they also do they have some error correcting um, uh, behavior? Uh, are they separated enough in the latent space that if some feature detector in the encoder uh, maybe makes a mistake, it still more or less gets mapped to the right? word uh, you know certainly with something like attention you could uh, imagine that you're decoding that into a uh, uh, something that's more like the you know the closest code word in the space when you, when you minimize say the dot product or the cosine distance so um, yeah so maybe there's a, a another lesson there I don't know so so maybe an experiment for what you're mentioning there would look something like, basically along the lines of what you mentioned. So if a feature detector makes a mistake, maybe you can go and intervene somewhere in the network um, and mess with some intermediate representation somewhere and kind of see what comes out the other end. Well, I guess you'd, you'd be looking for redundancy. So one of the things about error correcting codes is that they, they, they are not, uh, you know, information bottleneck uh, minimizers uh, of, the, of the channel they would there's there they there would be some mechanism that's deliberately introducing redundancy and i don't know if there's any such mechanism happening in these systems but um, i mean we also see uh, weird kinds of things what, you know uh, my colleague fushin lee and alan fern uh, developed this work in explainable ai where they were trying to look at single neurons or units in the say output layer of a neural network and ask well what what are they? What's was the meaning of this neuron? Um, and what they found is that meaning is often overloaded. So they were looking at the Caltech uh, birds data data set, and they would find that a unit could simultaneously be encoding some pattern that might be true of the beak of a bird, and also some pattern that might occur on the tail of the bird. And the thing is that there that very often in most images, only one of those two parts of the bird will be visible, and so the same unit can perform two different functions. So I don't know whether uh, uh, it, it could be that that the that the learned representations are actually extremely compressed and that they're it, they're not learning any kind of redundancy. Uh, this would argue that, that that kind of experience with with the bird data set suggests that, uh, that that they're trying to pack as much information into as few units as possible, um, which is one of the reasons we have difficulty understanding how the, what they're doing. One of before we move on from this paper, you had this open question at the end, which You've touched on a little bit, but this was about why does the error correcting code method work in the first place? You brought up the point that it, well, does seem to work. And our hope that the different classifiers make independent mistakes seems to kind of hold up. But your intuition there was because the hypotheses are learned using the same algorithm on the same training data, then you'd expect some high level of correlation and that the errors couldn't be corrected with such a code. So I guess I'm curious if there's been follow-up work on that or you know if you've maybe developed other intuitions about what might have been going on there why the intuition doesn't seem to coincide with what happened i certainly one thing is i if i were revisiting that now we know that 
Well, and I kind of discussed it there. We we know that 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 the the data typically under determine the answer, right? So that so there are many many different uh, say decision boundaries that are consistent with the data, and so if uh, if I'm using uh, uh, a, a independent learning uh, runs of the learning algorithm to learn each of the bits in an, in a distributed output encoding of the class labels. Um, uh, we might expect that they're making more or less arbitrary choices among the equally good fits to the data. Um, when we use a, the, that, that, and so, so that gives them some independence. I mean, the other uh, argument that, that we made in that, uh, uh, we had a follow-on paper where we looked at, uh, uh, thinking about it in terms of the actual structure of the decision boundaries. Uh, when I define a Boolean, uh, one bit in the error correcting code, I can think of that as actually defining a set of classes, you know, that, that, that basic, that, that, uh, if we were thinking about something like the, uh, um, you know, uh, MNIST, um, uh, digit recognition task, you know, one bit might be, is the, is the digit odd or even? And another right bit might be, you know, uh, is it, uh, you know, one, two, three, or four versus the other bits, you know, so each one, uh, is asking a different question about the data and its decision boundary uh, may be, uh, uh, again, uh, what classes you group together will change the required curvature of the decision boundary and, uh, and may make it easier or harder to learn that concept. And so that's another way that uh, defining these, the set of binary questions maybe perturbs the algorithms. I mean, so, right, I mean, the general notion of any ensemble method is we're trying to introduce some perturbations into the learning algorithms in order to, uh, uh, yeah, get, have, make them make uh, independent errors that then we can average away by, by some sort of central limit theorem type of behavior. Right. Yeah. And, and so um, uh, at least that w- that was the story uh, at the time. I mean, we might in, in light of the, uh, the, this benign overfitting phenomenon we see in deep nets where we perfectly fit the data and keep training and our accuracy on our generalization error continues to drop even when our training error has already hit zero. Uh, that's calling into question whether this pure bias variance explanation of what was going on in ensembles uh, still applies or whether there's some maybe something else we need to think about. Yeah. Another interesting thing that we see sort of going on in modern transformers that feels kind of related to your explanation, of course, not precisely the same, is that in understanding what's sort of going on in different heads of a transformer, when people have done evaluations on those and looked at what's going on with the purpose of figuring out, well, maybe what sort of syntactic relationships are being encoded in the representations of these transformers. And they might find something like, well, different heads are actually encoding different syntactic or or grammatical rules. And so it's maybe not exactly the same thing as what we're going after here, but it does seem like maybe a a sort of related phenomenon that's going on. Right. In some sense that we, yeah, we're trying to decompose the problem into a set of simpler problems. So I think maybe for not spending too much time on this section, but quickly moving on. You did have another paper on ML bias, statistical bias, and statistical variance of decision tree algorithms. And just for the purpose of maybe pausing on the idea of bias for people who are kind of listening to this, 
we, I think, have maybe, there's maybe a mix of backgrounds. And bias, of course, is a really overloaded but important term in machine learning and in learning theory in general. And I think for me, when I was getting introduced to this, I, I like the idea that the learning from data book kind of introduces pictorially with, you know, reference to hypothesis spaces and optimal hypotheses. But if you could introduce the term bias just for the first time to somebody, I'm curious how you would approach the discussion. I, I mean, I usually would draw a picture, um, but uh, the, the, the definition of bias from a statistical point of view, right, is that the, um, the prediction that the algorithm making, is making is systematically off in some way. Uh, if we're thinking about regression problems, for instance, it might be systematically high or systematically low. And that's different from, say, the bias uh, that, that might be uh, against uh, uh, some one subgroup of people versus another, like the bias in, in image recognition for face recognition, that the system just performs more poorly on darker faces. Um, and that introduces, that then lines up with a cultural bias uh, that's about fairness. And, and, but this, this notion of statistical bias is that uh, if we, if we uh, think about just a regression problems, so say linear regression with least squares, um, we can decompose the error of a regression model into, into two terms. One is, is the variance, just how much, every time you run the algorithm on a new sample of data, you'll get a slightly different uh, fit to the data, right? So if you imagine you, you could draw 100 independent training sets uh, for a problem and fit 100 different linear regressions, they would all be similar, but if we, if we uh, graph them all, they would be like a cloud of lines, right? That would be vibrating around in some sense. And, uh, and the, the amount of, of variation from one line to another, that's considered to be the variance of the algorithm. The bias is if we now took the average of all those lines, is that line systematically off from the true regression line? Um, and, uh, and, and that would be the bias. Now, uh, you know, a lot in statistics, there, for many years, the goal was let's find an unbiased estimator. We want to have an unbiased estimate of the regression line because we want to then interpret it, say, causally or something like this. And, and, uh, we, and, and we're trying to estimate, say, the causal effect of giving aspirin or something. If we get a biased estimate, we're going to under or overestimate that effect. And that's, that would be bad. Um, but when we, uh, but, but uh, once you step out of the maximum likelihood view of the world, and particularly in machine learning, as we go to extremely flexible collections of hypotheses uh, uh, that, are, that have, say, varying levels of complexity. Um, so the simplest thing would just be if we're doing feature selection in regression. But more generally, with decision trees, how deep do we grow them? With neural networks, how big do we to we make the hidden layers, we we um, uh, we uh, end up introducing a huge amount of variance in in the models if we find if we use very very large models. And so, uh, typically, we put in some form of regularization, which will reduce the variance, but usually increases the bias. Uh, and uh, uh, so the um, yeah so so. What's I guess I'm trying to think. Anyway, the the one theory for what was going on with say bagged or uh, ensemble methods in general, but particularly bagging uh, and randomization techniques, uh, 
So in bagging, we would train. We, we, we don't expect to get actually 100 independent training sets. We get one training set, but we can use what's called bootstrapping to draw subsamples of that data set and train the uh, classifier 100 times on 100 different random subsamples of the data set and then have those vote. Now, when we train on subsamples, we actually are increasing the variance. But when we vote them, that's a variance reduction step. And typically, the variance reduction that we get uh, would would be would really uh, greatly improve the accuracy of the answer, but it might also risk slightly increasing the bias. So, uh, um, but but the but the sort of the game that we're playing in machine learning, I think, is that if you use a very flexible space of hypotheses, then you 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 bias is not your problem. You can you can fit the, you can represent the right answer. So that's that's not the problem. The problem is that you increase your variance. So by using a a very flexible hypothesis space, but then creating ensembles and voting them, you can squash the variance and that's how you get a big win. Um, so that was the idea uh, of, and and that was kind of a, a tutorial. So the question was, okay, that's a whole story for squared error. But, what, but in machine learning, we're usually doing classification. So we're using zero one loss is, our, is really the loss we care about, or we're using, uh, you know, log loss across entropy, uh, or something like that instead, um, and uh, and and now can we? Is there a way to do draw the same? Can we bring the theory over and have something like oh, a bias is very straightforward because because the bias just asks is there a systematic error that's caused by your by your learning algorithm or your space of hypotheses? Uh, but variance is a little bit trickier to to define and. Uh, Actually, it's not that hard to define either. You can define the bias and the variance. The problem is you can't decompose the ultimate zero one loss into just a sum of bias and variance. You have to introduce an additional term, uh, which uh, in my paper, I tried to define it away, uh, but, uh, but, but that was a hack. And uh, uh, one of Trevor Hasty's PhD students, Gareth James, uh, as part of his work, Really, I think it did the definitive work of defining an additional term that he calls the ensemble effect um, that, that that gives a, a clean decomposition, and 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 then he's able to to use that to uh, uh, to to give a, a good theory of of why these ensembles are working. Let's talk a little bit about reinforcement learning before we finish up this section and. There are mainly two papers I want to discuss here. One of the ones that you're very well known for is MaxQ for hierarchical reinforcement learning. To begin with, maybe for the unin- uninitiated, could you explain what hierarchical reinforcement learning is? Well, so uh, we know that obviously reinforcement learning, we can view it as, as, as in some sense, the learner is learning a program for, for behaving in some problem for playing Atari games or chess or whatever. And, uh, and maybe in chess, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't decompose, but, but we know in a lot of these games and a lot of other real situations, it's just as in ordinary programs where we often decompose the program into subroutines. um, We want to uh, think about it in terms of a set of sub goals. So if I'm uh, building a system, that's a personal assistant, uh, maybe it's, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, arrange uh, uh, a wedding, let's say, just uh, then, you know, it's got sub goals like find a venue, find a caterer, find a musicians, 
uh, both for the for the ceremony and also for the dance uh, and and on and on and on all these things you know who's going to provide chairs and tables and 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 uh, so those are all different sub goals and uh, if you just flatten that as one big reinforcement learning problem where it, it has these dozens and dozens of actions it can take and some reward function at the end that just says uh, you have a successful wedding and everybody leaves the party happy whatever um, I don't know how you form a, re a reward function there but uh, but but um, it's going to be very hard for the reinforcement learning system to solve it at, in that sort of very flat uh, 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 formulation. Uh, you'd really like instead to be able to uh, decompose the problem into sub goals and then uh, have reinforcement learning apply at the sub goal level and then somehow take this, the reinforcement learning solutions to the sub problems and glue them together to get a reinforcement learning solution to the whole problem. And so, at, you know, at the time I wrote that paper, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, there, um, the, there, there, there were a couple of other proposals for how to do this. Um, uh, and, uh, not, not so much how to do the decomposition, but if someone gave you a decomposition into sub goals, how could we do reinforcement learning in a way that could take advantage of that decomposition? So, uh, Doina Precup uh, and and Rich Sutton developed this thing called the Options Framework, um, which which basically def uh, showed how you could introduce macro operators basically into a flat reinforcement learning system and and have it work with those. My approach was maybe more of a programming software engineering kind of view, which is uh, let's decompose the we, the we will actually rely on a programmer to decompose the problem into sub goals and define rewards for those individual sub goals. Um, and so when we think about the reward for the whole wedding, you can think about how you might decompose that into rewards for the individual parts. And, and actually reward functions often do decompose into uh, different concerns that you want to have different rewards for. Um, and so that paper was about uh, a, 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 a nice formalism that said, well, what does it mean for a policy to be optimal in this hierarchical sense? It could be that it was optimal for the original flat MDP without the hierarchy. Um, but often when you introduce the hierarchy, you no longer can express what the original optimal policy was because you, if your policy is restricted to solving these sub goals sequentially one at a time, then there, I define a notion of hierarchical optimality, um, which is, you know, it's the best policy out of all policies that can be represented in this hierarchy. And then you can even make a further uh, thing, which is sort of it's it's kind of locally hierarchically optimal in the sense that um, uh, that that each each subtask is being solved optimally, but that doesn't necessarily apply that the overall task is being uh, 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 solved optimally. So, uh, and then I developed learning algorithm for for uh, if you're given that hierarchy for uh, learning, and what was interesting was that learning was not faster. Uh, out of the box, what 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 made what allowed us to actually get a speed up in learning was if in the sub goal you could ignore parts of the state variable of the of the state. So when you're thinking about planning for the band or something, you do not have to worry about uh, who's providing the tables and chairs, or so you can ignore big parts of the state space, and that's when you get a big win, right? Because the the curse of dimensionality is the curse of uh, high dimensional state spaces. And so 
it, what was the what what was the surprise? It was a surprise to me when I was working on it. Was that the that it was by introducing the hierarchy, you could define subtasks where only a subset of the state variables were relevant, and that gives you the speed up. It wasn't the hierarchy itself that gave you a speed up at all. In fact, it could make things worse. Um, but but, it, but if you could rely on it to shield you from some of the state variables, then you got a big win. Um, and uh, so that actually then carries on to this exogenous state MDP because now 20 years later <clears throat> or 18 years later in a collaboration with uh, uh, my colleague, George Tromponius, who at the time was working for Huawei, um, uh, we uh, were looking at the problem again of how can we, are, is there a way we can ignore certain state variables in a problem? We were working on a problem for Huawei that involved controlling cell towers, right? So Huawei sells cell tower uh, systems and uh, a cell tower, it turns out, can be reconfigured in real time. You can move the antennas around and you can change, I don't know, 50 or so parameters of these things. And they thought, well, let's uh, formulate that as a reinforcement learning problem, uh, sort of maybe naive, and, uh, and, and we'll just solve it. Um, uh, and, but the problem is that... Um, what is the reward function? Well, the reward function is something like the fraction of customers who are uh, have adequate bandwidth, um, and uh, and and what determines that? Uh, there's an awful lot of things customers are doing that are outside of the control of the cell tower operator that are going to influence that. Like if all the customers all go to a football stadium, uh, and we just don't have enough cell towers there. Or, or during rush hour along highways, maybe there's just not enough capacity. Um, you know, we're going to do badly on our on our uh, on our reward, and 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 of course the reinforcement learning algorithm is going to sit there tweaking these parameters and seeing if that makes an improvement in the reward. And the truth is, nothing that the reinforcement learning algorithm is doing is going to improve the reward in those situations. I mean, our big realization was in the middle of the night when there's no demand. Uh, reinforcement learning won't be able to learn anything because nothing it does will make any difference because there's no customer. So they're all happy. And in rush hour, same thing, the, all the customers are unhappy, but there's still nothing that the learning algorithm can do. It was only on the shoulders, on the margins, where the controller could actually do, do something that would make a difference to the customers. Um, and so uh, we realized that, that the state of the system included all these exogenous variables that were not under the control of the cell tower, but the reward function did depend on those variables, right? That's the, was the challenge. And so we uh, studied this problem, and, uh, and in this, in, uh, we had a short paper at ICML 2018, and now we have this long paper on archive uh, that's under review where we work out all uh, a, a very comprehensive theory of exogenous variables in MDPs. And, uh, and, and for the special case where the reward function can be decomposed as a sum of some terms that depend only on the exogenous variables and some terms that depend on all the variables, then we can show how you can uh, simplify the reward function and remove variables from the reward function. And, and if you do that, then again, you can get a big speed up in learning um, because you have a simpler reward function, a lower dimensional reward function. Um, yeah. And it was quite surprising in those experiments, we found that if, you, if, you, if your action space only, say, is three-dimensional, you only have three, say, real-valued parameters you can set in this thing, then um, the, the, uh, 
that the endogenous space, the reward function that you're working with can be reduced to a reward function that depends only on three variables. So that, that, so you get amazing reductions in dimensionality as a result of that, that uh, theorem. I think this is this uh, exogenous way of thinking about things is going to come up again when we talk about robustness a little bit later from what I recall of your coverage there. And maybe as, as a way to bridge us there, we can talk a bit about your work in computational sustainability. And here there's been a particular project that you've been involved with called Project Tomo. Perhaps you could introduce that and then we can talk about the some of the goals and research challenges in ML for computational sustainability. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, as a sort of lead into Tamo, um, I've been working since the mid 90s in collaboration with ecologists here at Oregon State. Oregon State University is one of the you know real powerhouses in, in ecology, uh, in forestry, fisheries, uh, atmospheric sciences, oceanography. Um, and so uh, so I've had many collaborations on all kinds of projects in wildfire management, invasive species management, all kinds of things. But the Tomo project, and, and so I like to think about computational sustainability as a kind of a whole pipeline that starts with where do we put sensors if we're sensing the environment to, to study something in an ecosystem, we need sensors out there. And then often the raw data needs to be converted into something more meaningful. Like for instance, maybe I put out camera traps because I'm trying to measure uh, wildlife. And now I get all these images or video. I need to do uh, computer vision to turn that into counts of individuals and, 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 and then fit machine learning models to that to build models of the, the ecosystem and its dynamics. And then ultimately, maybe I now want to introduce uh, a, uh, uh, a sort of Markov decision process problem of, okay, now I want to intervene in this ecosystem uh, to maybe kill an invasive species or reserve habitat or whatever. So now I'm looking at policymaking and, and I need to solve uh, MDPs or POMDPs or something. And, and so uh, computational sustainability can enter at many different places in the pipeline. Uh, TAMO is... Uh, the Trans-Africa Hydrometeorological Observatory. Um, and, uh, and it's an effort by uh, my colleague, uh, uh, John Selker, who's a, uh, econ- um, a uh, hydrologist, uh, and uh, another hydrologist, Nick Van de Giesen from the Technical University in Delft. Um, they've been working for many years in Africa. Uh, John was a Peace Corps volunteer there as a young man. Um, and one of the things that is holding back uh, agricultural productivity in Africa is the lack of good weather data. You know, in the United States, uh, the National Weather Service is estimated to to contribute indirectly many billions of dollars, something like twenty billion of dollars of GDP, uh, because it gives good forecasts that can allow farmers to make planting decisions, harvesting decisions, uh, crop insurance decisions. It supports the whole futures market. Um, and so this is lacking in large parts of Africa and Latin America where they're, uh, I mean, you talk to anyone who works for a national weather service, they'll say they're underfunded, even in the United States, but they're woefully underfunded in developing countries, of course, because there's just not, you know, in a government just doesn't have a lot of funds to work with and things like education and, and water systems take priority. Um, so, uh, 
they also, uh, uh, you know, because of the huge progress in miniaturization, we can go from uh, weather stations that, that cost uh, tens of thousands of dollars to, say, a $1,000 single unit um, that, that can, can uh, have a weather station in a very compact package and be fully automated. And so their idea was, could we build a uh, weather network in all of sub-Saharan Africa that, that could make, can transform Africa from being the worst sensed continent to being the best sensed continent. And so that's their, their, their uh, sort of uh, moonshot. Um, we're not there yet. We have a network of about 700, actually 750 stations, but we only count 650 of them because a lot of them are offline these days. Um, and we're in about 22 countries in Africa. Um, which in and of itself is a huge accomplishment because we had to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with every government uh, that we would be allowed to operate in that country and that we would be allowed to take data out of that country. Uh, and of course, this involves sharing the data for free with, uh, with those governments and their meteorological services, um, really trying to support their meteor- meteorology offices. Um, and, uh, and so... Um, the uh, most of the funding has come from uh, things like USAID, the United Nations, the EU, um, uh, and uh, and now some is coming indirectly from things like uh, USAID or World Bank uh, funding countries to improve their infrastructure, and then they turn around and and hire us to do their weather infrastructure. Um, we also have some funding from uh, IBM and from Google as they have been interested in in weather data at various points. So uh, my role on this project is uh, sensor data quality control. So, um, you know, I like to joke that these weather stations are fantastic if you keep them indoors in the laboratory, but for some crazy reason, we want to put them out in the environment. Um, And so, uh, you know, an important design goal with these weather stations is no moving parts. So, you know, you don't use a tipping bucket rain gauge anymore because the tipping bucket can jam. You don't use a spinning cup anemometer because it can jam. You use ultrasound instead. Um, but, uh, but unfortunately, rain gauges in particular, you still have to measure the rain itself. So the moving part is the water. And uh, precipitation has become my number one headache um, because it's a very non-Gaussian behaving variable. It's zero most of the time, even in very wet places. Um, as, and it's very heavy-tailed. Uh, and... Uh, and yet it needs to move through our measuring device. So the collecting cone can get clogged uh, so that the, the rain gauge is reporting zero incorrectly when it was raining. And the, also the, the entry to the rain gauge can be open, but the exit out the other end can get clogged. And then the water backs up and leads to absurdly high measure, reported measurements, you know, like two meters of rain. And we don't think two meters of rain fell in. There. So, um, uh, so uh, my original dream was that we could use um, statistical methods, uh, you know, off-the-shelf machine learning. You know, one of the goals of, of machine learning, I would say, as a field has uh, been, can we develop these very general purpose algorithms like random forests, right, uh, or, or uh, you know, these gradient boosting techniques that can be pretty much applied out of the box without any hyperparameter tuning to any random problem and get decent results. This is sort of Leo Breiman's vision uh, in statistics uh, as one of the, you know, he was one of the co-inventors of classification and regression trees. 
Um, and so I was hoping to use out of the box kind of generic uh, techniques to do uh, uh, basically anomaly detection, look for anomalous readings from our weather stations and flag those for the technicians to go visit the station and repair them. Well, and, and you know, the alternative to, the, to this is to start doing detailed modeling, you know, build models of the time series behavior of rain or the spatial behavior of rain and things like this. Um, well, uh, in, and, and I had done work on anomaly detection um, uh, benchmarking showing that uh, an algorithm called the isolation forest that was invented uh, at, at Monash University in Australia by Kaiming Ting and uh, one of his students and Ji Hua Zhou from Nanjing, that this was a really nice off-the-shelf uh, anomaly detection algorithm, at least for featureized data. And so uh, we deployed uh, the, uh, isolation forests on our problem and it performed terribly. So over time, I've been forced to get more and more into modeling to the point that now we are just working on trying to identify clogged rain gauges. We have a model just for that purpose. <laughs> um, but we have models deployed on the, on the network. They are detecting anomalies in the, in the precipitation values. Then those go through a, a human review and turn into trouble tickets that the technicians uh, then go out in the field and fix things. So um, we're continuing to develop better models. This, this clogged uh, rain gauge one we hope to deploy later this year. Um, and we have another model that we're working on that, that uh, might be even better. So, um, so it's been, I, I don't know, I feel like I've had to sort of uh, leave behind the goal of off the shelf machine learning as a solution here and get my hands dirty doing detailed uh, modeling. And, uh, and, and I think when you do application work, you often are sent, forced into this. <laughs> so uh, you can't just point a large language model at it and say, you know, look at this rain. Yeah. I guess often, often are the assumptions and theories we want to make also tend to fall apart the moment we encounter the real world in a lot of these cases. This is maybe a good lead-in for us. We can quickly, so this has sort of demonstrated a couple of the problems that you talk about in terms of the distinctive characteristics of sustainability problems, in this case particularly about just how tough the data can be to work with. And I think that you've also sort of touched on a couple of the other issues that sort of come up here and the other projects as well when we're thinking about policies for controlling invasive species or these sorts of things and that we typically have these goals that are to maybe deal with spatial spread in one way or another and also with when it comes to optimization um, we actually do have robustness as a concern we need to be robust to incorrect models we need to deal with unknown unknowns and I think that the idea of unknown unknowns is really one of the central features of the president's address you gave on steps towards robust AI. The idea that really we can't model everything and we have to accept that as a fact about the world. And I think that robustness right now is really important and kind of a central topic in a lot of ways, especially as we're thinking about some of the failures of large language models, a lot of AI safety people are very concerned about things like misspecified goals that come up in robustness as well. Could you perhaps introduce some of the way that you've thought about robustness recently and the different types of problems we have to encounter in that space and how we sort of think about them? Right. So 
so as I said, I've been interested in anomaly detection because that's my main uh, thing. So when we when we build, a, say, a machine learning system, I think every machine learning system should have a model of its own competence. It should know the the, the subspace of the input space in, for which it's able to be trusted uh, and outside of which it should not be trusted, right? And, um, and so the question is, well, how can we build those competence models? So uh, one thing, of course, is that um, if, if we're assuming that we don't have any distribution shift um, uh, and so we're just dealing with IID data, then we can look at, uh, at getting calibrated uncertainty estimates out of, out of classifiers. Uh, and so I've been very interested in the calibration literature. Uh, I'm a big fan of conformal prediction, uh, which gives us very nice uh, finite sample guarantees that are quite tight. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so those are, those are wonderful. Of course, uh, every uh, real application problem encounters distribution shift. So, um, so then the question is, well, how can we um, uh, deal with that? Uh, and I have not worked on this too much, but, but, uh, but obviously there, there are many people doing very nice work on detecting distribution shift um, and then uh, building systems that are either robust to it in some sense. Um, uh, in particular, you know, looking for uh, uh, invariant uh, models that are invariant to distribution shift. Um, and uh, and or, and also doing things like uh, you know transfer learning or adaptation uh, under distribution shift, domain shift, things like this. So I'm very excited by those. The problem that I've really focused on, though, is known as the open category problem or the open set problem, right? In computer vision, in particular, um, uh, this arose in another one of my sustainability projects, which was uh, measuring uh, freshwater uh, health of uh, or the health of freshwater streams. Um, is done using uh, uh, bioindicators. So the US EPA every year does a randomized uh, sampling of the insects that live in freshwater streams in the United States. So it turns out there are many species of insect that spend the majority of their lives in a larval stage as a bug living underwater with gills. Um, they typically only emerge from the water to and fly around and breathe air just long enough to mate. <laughs> and then they drop their eggs into the water or lay them on leaves or whatever, and, and their lives are over. So stoneflies, mayflies, caddisflies all have this kind of life cycle. Um, and, uh, and so uh, the, the, that testing problem, they, they collect these samples and, and bring them back to a laboratory. And then some technician has to go through and pull out each insect and, and classify it to at least the level of its genus. And then they count these up, and because the different uh, different genera or species have different are vulnerable to different um, pollutions, pollution, pollutants, um, you can look at a histogram of what species were present there, and it's like a, a a fingerprint for what kinds of pollution the stream is has been experiencing. And the beauty of it is that because those insects are living in the stream for a long time, they're integrating this information over time. So it's not like a single point in time chemical capture where maybe a, a polluting company upstream knows you're coming and they close the, the uh, you know, pollution off for a few days and you miss it. Uh, the bugs know because the bugs have been there the whole time. So, um, so I had collaborators and we, uh, who, who actually uh, initiated this project. Um, we were using state-of-the-art for the time, which was uh, support vector machines over bags of SIFT features and things like this. Um, 
but we we got a system that performed quite well in 54 different uh, uh, species or genus genera of of these insects, but we had focused only on the day, on the species that were of interest to us for this uh, uh, health measurement problem. But the real uh, field samples that you get, it turns out there are 1,200 species of insects in the United States, not 54, which were the 54 that my system could handle. And so uh, it was only as we were getting ready to deploy it that we realized oh, we have this uh, open set problem. We have to detect these other things that are not our species of interest uh, and 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 we found that we were uh, achieving an equal error rate of 20%, which is to say 20% of of these uh, aliens, let's call them, uh, we were incorrectly recognizing as one of our classes of interest. And 20% of our classes of interest, we were rejecting as being aliens. So this was unacceptably poor behavior. It just wasn't usable. And so that's what launched me on this whole uh, uh, goal to... Uh, develop anomaly detection algorithms that could detect that these things were different from my training data and that I should reject them as being anomalous. So that was that's my strategy for trying to deal with the unknown unknowns. Um, what we, and so we've been working on this for a long time. What we've discovered just in the last few years, because um, we're just coming off of a, of a grant we had from DARPA on this, is um, that... Uh, Deep anomaly, so anomaly detection, when we do it sort of with traditional techniques where we're hand engineering the features, like if you think about uh, the famous irises problem that, uh, that Fisher uh, used when he was developing uh, Fisher linear discriminant analysis, you measure things like the length of the sepals and the lengths of the petals. And uh, if you have a species that has uh, sepals or petals that are much longer or much shorter than the ones in your training data, they are obvious outliers in your feature space. Okay. And so these anomaly detection algorithms can find them uh, very easily and it works great. But when we go to deep learning, deep now we're relying on the learning algorithm itself to learn its own features. And it basically only learns features that detect variation that was present in the training data. Um, you know, for example, in my insect problem, we looked at the 54 categories that we were interested in and we said, well, Color is not an informative feature here, so we won't use RGB. We'll just use grayscale. But if there's 1,200 species out there and some of them have bright red dots, we uh, won't be able to find them because we didn't include color in the features. It's just like, you know, uh, again, it was a whole mindset that you've got to, if you're, if you're doing robustness engineering, you need to think about all the other stuff, the, these unknown unknowns. How am I going to detect them? And, uh, and it starts with your, with your sensor data that you're going to choose. But back to deep learning, if your training data, uh, if everything was the same color, then it doesn't need to learn a color feature, right? So it will essentially do the same thing we did because it's not forced to learn it. It doesn't carry, it's not useful for minimizing cross entropy on the 54 categories on the output. So it will not learn feature detectors for that. Um, and so... Um, one thing that's interesting is, you know, the self-contrastive, uh, you know, I guess instance contrastive learning like SimClear, um, uh, color there, uh, it's a little tricky because again, if you only have your known species and you don't introduce any like color perturbations to the data, then again, it won't learn to pay attention to color at all in its representation. 
So, um, so, so we still have a, these systems are still vulnerable to this problem um, that if there was insufficient variation in the training data, uh, so uh, then, then for instance, with with uh, lengths of things, it seems that often uh, the deep learning representation is more like a histogram style representation. So we'll have features that turn on for sort of small, medium, and large. And if there's something that's extra large in the test data, it'll just call it large. And it won't show up as an outlier it, because that's a, a large is a normal uh, level. So, so again, we have a problem that, um, that, that uh, we have to somehow get these systems to, to represent the, the space around the data, not just the data itself. Um, one way to do that, I think, uh, the most obvious thing is train on as much stuff as you can. So, so um, you know, Dan Hendricks and I, right, ha ha uh, had this paper on outlier exposure, and the idea was let's get a whole ton of unlabeled data that it doesn't even need to be related to the task at all. It's just more variation and train our system to output low scores, low probabilities on all that stuff. Um, and But that does encourage the system to, to come up with features that let it separate this chaff, this, this junk from the uh, classes of interest. And I think the, 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 you know, again, if you, if you train on all of ImageNet, you have a thousand categories, maybe you're only interested in five of them, but you will have a much more, a much better classifier. And, and my uh, former student, Alex Geyer, and I have this paper uh, where we show that, that, that training on more classes, uh, even if you don't care about them, uh, but you have supervised labels for them. That's even better because it uh, you you learn you're forced to learn features to to discriminate the your known classes that you care about from lots of other stuff, and that lets you represent other stuff. Because uh, if you can if you can convert the problem of one of um, of, uh, of of detecting outliers outside the, the feature set to just detecting unusual combinations of known features then you solve the problem. But one of the things we found, so we, uh, we wrote this paper um, uh, with, on what we call the familiarity hypothesis. Uh, one thing that's been very frustrating about deep anomaly detection is that the, uh, uh, the simplest method, which is just looking at the logit scores of a cross-entropy classifier, is, is uh, highly competitive with much with fancy anomaly detection techniques and all kinds of stuff that we cooked up, including trying to use isolation forest and, and, and other things. Um, and, th and this was really conclusively shown by a, a nice paper um, uh, uh, that came out of, uh, of uh, Zisserman's lab at Oxford. Um, and uh, uh, where, where they showed that if you just uh, did a really good job of training a classifier and then use the maximum of the logit scores, it, for new classes, uh, that maximum is often lower, and so you can you can detect that. But they didn't. They just it was experimental. What we put forward the hypothesis that what's going on is that these classifiers have uh, basically have learned to measure familiarity. They have a bunch of features that turn on when they see familiar objects, and if enough features for a class turn on, then it classifies it as belonging to that class. And, and when the logit scores are low, it's because there just isn't much familiar. The familiar features aren't being turned on. And so it says, uh, this, I don't see anything familiar in the image. Uh, and, and that works, you know, surprisingly well. 
and maybe there's a route to success there, um, but but I think it is easily attacked. So you could imagine if you have an image that contains both a familiar object and an unfamiliar one, the classifier will be very happy with the familiar object and it won't see, I mean, let's say the elephant in the room is a new class that it's never seen before. It won't notice it because it's very familiar with this tricycle that's in the foreground. It gets all excited about it. So, um, so that's part of the problem. But, but maybe the solution there is to use something like SAM, segment all the objects in the image, and then ask it, does this look familiar? Does this look familiar? And then it presumably would segment out this elephant and, and then the classifier would say, man, I don't have any familiar features turned on in that region. So something weird is there. So, so maybe that's the route forward, but, um, but that's, I think that's an important uh, direction for, for trying to deal with unknown unknowns. One interesting part of this too was how it was pretty counterintuitive to you that deep classifiers achieve excellent anomaly detection. And as I, I recall, your intuition was that, well, we are dealing with familiar or unfamiliar training samples X. And so you probably want to model directly the probability of that training sample X. And when that's low, you get an anomaly, but then deep classifiers are instead, well, they're classifiers. So they're modeling P of Y, the class given yeah, X. Given X, right. Yes, exactly. right. And so in, so they're, they, in theory, they're throwing out everything about P of X. Yes. Yeah, so, right. So the, this is a case where writing down the math does not help you because you, you say, well, the anomaly has got to be in the X space. I've got to detect P of X as being um, uh, somehow, yeah, the, the very low. Um, but the, I think the problem with that is that if you have an inadequate representation, then P of X won't, you won't be able, you won't get a good model of P of X. And that's the, and that's the problem. And, uh, um, you know, I got very excited about uh, these uh, normalizing flow uh, type uh, density estimators because you think, well, gee, we now we could do like high dimensional density estimation using normalizing flows. Our problems are solved because we can just model P of X. But unfortunately, they don't do anything that any kind of dimensionality reduction. So they have the the old problem that modeling P of X means you're trying to model the foreground, the background, the noise, the imaging conditions, uh, all kinds of stuff that is um, that is not relevant to the classification task necessarily. And, and so you're setting yourself up an extremely challenging modeling task. So, but, but of course, when you're doing anomaly detection, um, maybe the background matters. Maybe the imaging conditions matter. You know, maybe the, if, if I don't want to trust the classifier when it's operating in low light conditions or things like this, right? I, I, so it's very hard to see uh, whether there's any principle that lets us do feature selection in unsupervised learning. Uh, uh, and um, so uh, I, I, think, I think maybe that, that, that suggests that the whole saying, well, P of X is what we want. Maybe that's not what we want. Um, and we should think instead about what are the threats to the successful function of the system. Think more like cybersecurity, uh, what are the threats to validity or safety engineers? What are all the potential harms or uh, failure modes? And, and then how can I protect myself from them? So I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea that we might be able to somehow um, characterize the dimensions of variability that are present in our data and assess them and say, ah, we, we have insufficient variability in certain directions. Let's either synthetically or uh, generate new data there uh, with augmentations or uh, go collect new data 
to to build out more variability in in those directions, and maybe maybe we can um, yeah try figure out what is uh, reduce the risk that a novel object will vary in a direction that we did not capture in our training data. Um, so I think it's uh, these kinds of engineering uh, steps might might help us there. I mean fundamentally, obviously there is no solution. We can't see an ultraviolet, so something that's novel in the ultraviolet we wouldn't detect as humans. So, you know, so we can't expect, um, you know, to, to, to fully solve this problem. But uh, so I think it's some kind of a layered approach, as we were saying, where you can say, well, I, I can tell there's some object there, but I can't, but because it's, it's object like, but there's nothing familiar about it. So therefore uh, maybe I better stay far away from it because <laughs> it's something novel. I think this is a good place for us to move on to some of your more recent commentary. And actually, I think I want to begin with some of your commentary on large language models first. And you gave this talk about what's wrong with large language models and proposing alternatives at the Valgri seminar. Um, is, that, is that a play on Valgrind, by the way? No, it, uh, it's it's uh, Valencia. So the government of Valencia in Spain, that's one, right, has a... Uh, I think the G is for graduate and the R is maybe for research. Um, we have um, several universities, I want to say five or seven, uh, and they're try- trying to create a, uh, uh, a more, uh, a more um, lively research community across those universities. Some of them are very strong uh, research universities and others are uh, could use some, some help. And, uh, and the government is invested in, in AI by mostly uh, with graduate fellowship funding um, for, for those institutions. And I'm an external advisor. Uh, and so I, we have an annual meeting to review their progress and, uh, and we run a uh, symposium, you know, as part of that, where the students present their work and they asked me to give a talk. Um, but for the last year, I had been doing a study uh, on large language models um, to try uh, as part of something called ISAT, which is a uh, group of volunteer academics and and some industry people that that do studies to to try to influence DARPA's funding priorities, um, and so the my particular goals in that study were to try to understand, you know, what is industry going to be working on, what should DARPA be working on, what are the research priorities for for large language models. Um, so that's what that's it is. Okay, that's good context. Uh, the fact that I saw the name and thought Valgrind tells me I've been spending a little bit too much time with C++ recently, I think. <laughs> so let's maybe get a little bit into the main question of, of this talk about what exactly is wrong with LLMs and what we should be building instead. And here, I think that you do rehearse a lot of the flaws that people continue to talk about with LLMs, the fact that they're expensive to update, they can produce kind of unacceptable outputs that they hallucinate, of course. And I think maybe one interesting articulation you gave during that talk was that they are not just knowledge bases as as a database might be, but they're statistical models of knowledge bases. And of course, they're, you would never use a statistical model of a database, as you say, to answer questions about the database itself, which I thought was a really interesting way of putting some of the issues we're seeing. But maybe as as a way to kind of lead into how to discuss some of these problems and issues, the thesis here is that LLMs are, there's something wrong with them. 
And at the same time, though, for a lot of people, they are interesting. There are interesting and useful things to get out of these models. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the high-level goals here. If LLMs are not the way, what's what's the end game here? They're not the way to what? What do you think is sort of the appropriate goal? Well, uh, I guess you know, since, since my fundamental goal is is AI, uh, if I want to make a, a knowledgeable AI system, especially maybe an AI system that can act as an agent on my behalf, um, then uh, then I want a system that uh, well that knows its own limits, but uh, uh, and and performs correctly. Uh, and that can deal with uh, say problems that involve say reasoning and planning um, and uh, and and that produces you know no understands its its uh, kind of uh, social cultural ethical situation and behaves appropriately um, so so I guess that I, I I would say that that's kind of the uh, the the ultimate goal is you know to build a, an AI system um, and uh, so uh, and and of course people are trying to use LLMs to do this, and I and they're encountering lots of problems, and and as you say I think the the number one I mean the thing that is that is most fantastic about LLMs is that it's really our first exposure to uh, a system that is knowledgeable across the breadth of human knowledge, right? Um, and and the I take the big lesson I take away from it is that scaling up learning to the scale of, of, of all of human knowledge, or at least all of the written knowledge that we have, is a very powerful idea. Uh, and and we, as we think about how to improve LLMs, we've, we've got to be any change we make, it has to support this kind of end-to-end learning uh, uh, that has been so powerful. And it's completely unsupervised or self-supervised learning um, uh, because that's the only thing that scales. So uh, as you say... Um, I think the one of the big problems with hallucination, or, or I, I'm I'm starting to really like this word confabulation, because it's the idea of sort of confusion and fabrication, uh, is is exactly that. Um, although it's extremely knowledgeable, and we want to treat it like a knowledge base that we can ask it questions. So you know, back in the '80s, uh, researchers in AI formalized the abstract data type knowledge base. It just has two operations: ask and tell. So you can tell it facts, and then you can ask it queries. And uh, the idea was if the query followed logically from the facts, then it should uh, do the logical inference necessary to answer the query. Or obviously, if the, if the answer was just already explicit, like in a database, it should just retrieve it. So that was sort of the notion. And um, uh, of course, there were a lot of issues about what if you tell it something that contradicts something it knew in the past? How does it do belief revision? And there, there was a whole line of research there. But, um, but as a knowledge base, right, I would say the two big problems are we can ask it things, uh, and, and, but it doesn't give us the right answers, and we can't tell it anything um, because there's no way. Uh, paradoxically, we're using uh, what was originally an online learning algorithm like the perceptron algorithm, stochastic gradient descent, which was, uh, uh, could learn in real time to train these things, but now they, they are uh, extremely expensive to update. Um, but in any case, so we have sort of uh, a defective knowledge base. So, and, and part of it is, as you say, these are, I think they act more like probabilistic models of knowledge bases uh, in the sense that, it, uh, that when you ask them to answer a question, 
they can make up a plausible answer if they don't know the answer. Um, or if your prompt doesn't trigger them to retrieve the relevant piece of the thing, they might actually have the right answer somewhere in there. Um, and I was drawing an analogy to, to work that I've seen in the past by Lisa Gatour in her PhD thesis on probabilistic relational models of databases, where um, those models were very useful for things like query optimization, because you could estimate the sizes of intermediate tables when you did a, a series of joins. Um, you could also use them to do uh, anomaly detection on data elements. So if you saw uh, age of 2000, you would say, well, probably this isn't a person who's 2000 years old. It's probably a data entry error or something, whatever. It's a, it's a statistical outlier. And uh, so those are the, the uses of statistical models of databases. But you would never ask a database to answer a query using a statistical model because it will just make up a high probability tuple. You want it to actually look in the database and see if the tuple is there or not. Um, and, and that's kind of the problem we have with LLMs, I think, is that they don't have good models of their own domain of competence. Um, uh, they don't even seem to have very well calibrated probabilities on their own outputs, um, uh, at least post uh, RLHF fine tuning. Um, and so, I mean, don't, so I think we need to learn, we need to build competence models for large language models. Um, and I think that, that, that it does, we've been able to do that for classifiers, uh, at least in the IID setting, um, uh, you, by doing things like uh, recalibration and, and uh, anomaly detection and so on. So uh, that seems like it should be doable for, for LLMs. Um, but, but I think the, but, 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 but to get beyond the, the probabilistic model of a knowledge base problem, I think maybe we should actually experiment with a neurosymbolic architecture where the knowledge base is an explicit data structure, um, like a knowledge graph. And the LLM uh, could be viewed as, as, as more of a repository of just the linguistic knowledge um, and, and maybe common sense, the stuff that's not going to change you know, can be, we can afford to burn that into the weights of the network, but the stuff where we want to make updates, we want to tell it, you know, who won the baseball game yesterday. We should be able to just tell it and have it update the knowledge graph and not have to modify the weights. And, uh, and so, um, so we can imagine that an architecture somewhat like a retrieval augmented LLM could, could retrieve the relevant knowledge from the knowledge graph and then generate the answer uh, from its linguistic knowledge. Now, you know, there's a long, evidently, I've learned from talking to linguists that there is a long controversy about the extent to which you can separate world knowledge from linguistic knowledge. You know, it, uh, um, I was told that, uh, that, that only the most diehard Chomskyan thinks that there's a clean API that separates those two concerns. Um, but, uh, but, I, but, but I hope we can explore that boundary and... Uh, and, and figure out, you know, what, what aspects for the changeable aspects of the world, uh, uh, we'd really like to pull those out of the LLM and represent them explicitly. And right now, retrieval augmented models suffer from this problem that um, they still can hallucinate or confabulate even when they're doing retrieval, right? They, we can't, haven't found the magic to restrict them to only using the retrieved documents to answer the question. Um, and... Uh, so I, that, I think that's still a challenge of, of trying to find this boundary and um, yeah, uh, figuring out how to train systems. And then, of course, 
the big issue is now, now how do we, we have to go back and ask, well, now how can we do that end-to-end learning? Given a new document, I need to be reading it and asking, oh, I already knew this fact because it's in my knowledge base. Oh, here's a new fact. I should add it to my knowledge base. Or is this something that I should really trust enough to add to my knowledge base? I mean, actually, you know, a naive model of a knowledge graph is that it's like a single snapshot of everything that's true. But that's not going to work at all. We're going to need to have uh, micro theories where, you know, this is here's a set of things in the knowledge graph. This is stuff that uh, I don't know that that. uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-vaxxers believe. And here's a bunch of stuff that uh, epidemiologists believe and whatever we need to have. Uh, uh, and, and here's stuff that was that we believed was true before the year 2000, but now we don't believe is true anymore. I mean, we need to have, uh, this has to be a, a much more complicated structure. And of course, people have worked on this in symbolic knowledge representation so, uh, and in databases. So I, I think all these problems can be dealt with, but they need to be now to interact with the learning process, as we're reading documents, we need to understand the context and which which aspects of the knowledge base the update should go in. Um, or maybe it needs to be the system has to say, I'm not sure, and put it someplace where it can put probabilities on it. I don't know. And, and then if we want to bring inference into this, we also want to say, okay, well, maybe I don't need to add this to my knowledge base because it's a fact I could easily have inferred from stuff I already know. So... And, and how do you um, then orchestrate inference into this learning process? I think these are really tricky challenges that, that would need to be developed. But, but my vision is that you would have a system, again, I'm very much inspired by this paper by Kyle Mahawald, uh, Anna Ivanova et al. on dissociating language and thought in large language models, a cognitive perspective, where they look at the neuroscientific evidence for modularity in the brain and the idea that uh, you know, factual knowledge is separate in a separate area from linguistic knowledge is a separate area from reasoning and planning and metacognition. Um, and right now our LLMs, as far as we can tell, have mushed all together. Well, they're missing some of those functions and the remaining ones are all uh, entangled in a single network. Although maybe maybe some of this mechanistic interpretability will be able to tease those apart yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess as you've kind of talked about, you have this suite of different modules that we might want to develop that go from planning to, of course, you have metacognition, formal reasoning, language, understanding. As you said, it might be a little bit more difficult to disentangle from some of these other components and we might think um, is one of its own. And then we have sort of common sense, factual world knowledge. And like each of these partitions is sort of a, a very difficult problem of its own. And one thing to what you said that seems um, we're thinking about and kind of, I guess, empirically investigating as we try to build systems like this is to what extent are language capacities possible to disentangle, to isolate from things like how we tend to reason about the world. I think there is at least some traditions or, or people in philosophy who will think about the ways that we sort of read off the idea that maybe things in the world are causally connected or reason in that way because of the structure of our language. And of course, that's going to depend maybe on which particular language you learn, for instance. And so you have a lot of sort of different kind of psycholinguistic tendencies there and things like that. But it does feel like there is maybe something to how these questions are going to be kind of empirically investigated as you go down a research path like this. 
Right, and I think um, uh, we sh- we mustn't overestimate the the uh, the, uh, the capacity of uh, to uh, our capacity to do reasoning. Right, I think uh, you know I find that that my deepest reasoning is done by writing, and so I'm really using an external medium to keep track of my thoughts. My thoughts are typically represented linguistically or possibly with diagrams. And of course, this is a big point that Herbert Simon made. Uh, it was uh, this is the role of external memory? He would call this, um, and and what we but somehow we learn to to uh, yes to to think out loud or to think through our external memory and and language certainly is playing a big role there. So uh, I you know I I grew up at a time when John McCarthy, of course, was a huge influence at Stanford, and his whole perspective was that the core inference engine was going to be a logical reasoning engine. Um, and now, of course, LLMs, where people are saying, well, maybe the core re- engine is going to be this linguistic engine. Uh, I don't think either is sufficient by itself. I think we'll need some mix. But uh, but it is possible to, um, I guess, we, 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 we don't know what that mix should be. Well, this is a really interesting, I think, kind of alternative to the research program that everybody seems to be throwing everything at right now. And so... I'm really thankful that you're continuing to push for thinking about this sort of thing. And I um, think this is probably a good note to end on too, I think for anyone listening that really, um, I I also hope that people can be a little bit more imaginative in the types of research directions and things that they want to build than I think sort of the dominating sequence of papers seems to be right now. And so I'm, I'm really thankful to you for pushing this line of work forward and for taking the time to speak with me today. So thank you again. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. So I hope we have a chance to talk again in the future. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.